This week on the Road to Cinema podcast, director Trish C. of the new film Pitch Perfect 3, opening in theaters on December 22nd, starring Anna Kendrick in the third installment of the popular musical comedy series. We'll also discuss Trish's early work directing music videos for the popular band OK Go, including Here It Goes Again and Upside Down and Inside Out, which reached over 40 million hits online and filmed in zero gravity conditions. We'll also have a detailed conversation about how to trust yourself and collaborate within the immersive creative process of directing a film. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, please visit jogroadproductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter at jogroad, Instagram at jogroadproductions. You can like our Facebook page, Jog Road Productions. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Jog Road Productions, to watch some of our Road to Cinema video interviews, which include Moon Zappa, Don Cheadle, and Greta Gerwig. And don't forget to subscribe and write a review on Apple Podcasts and iTunes under the Road to Cinema podcast. And now we join director Trish C. of the new film Pitch Perfect 3, which opens in theaters on December 22nd. I wanted to start off by talking about those amazing OK Go music videos, and it all sort of began for you with uh, Here We Go Again. So how did you connect with OK Go in the first place? Um, those guys, my brother's in the band. He's the lead singer, uh, Damien Kulash, and I grew up with those guys. We went to band camp together, essentially went to Interlochen Music Academy, uh, music camp, when we were growing up, Tim Nordwin and Damien and I. And um, so they're like little brothers to me, essentially. And in fact, when we did the Here It Goes Again video, I had already done a video with them, um, which we actually didn't even intend for it to be a video. It was sort of a practice choreography video um, of them doing a dance called A Million Ways that they used to perform in their live shows. And when we choreographed it, we filmed it, partly so that they would remember their choreography and partly because they really wanted to be in Michelle Gondry's dance movie, and so they wanted to send it to him as like an audition. <laughs> so we shot it for those reasons, and this is in the days of MySpace. It became like a MySpace sensation. And when it came time to release a new record, they were signed to Capitol Records at that point, and Capitol wanted to do some, some fancy videos with them. Um, but we also wanted to see if we could top A Million Ways, the dance video we had already made in my brother's backyard. So that's when I got the idea, okay, well, we had used all the dance moves that I think they were capable of, just straight up dance moves. So it was time to sort of introduce a new element or gimmick, and that's where the treadmills came from. Um, and as I recall that year, they were really busy. They were touring a lot. So they had about two weeks off in the entire year. And in those two weeks, they came to my dance studio and we rented the treadmills. We actually had to buy the treadmills and return them afterwards. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and, and we, we made the, the treadmill Was video. Was it always the intention to shoot it in one fluid shot? Well, yes, because... Um, we were afraid that if we used any cuts or any trickery, people would not believe we had done it. And that has kind of been a mainstay of OK Go's um, sort of aesthetic and philosophy at this point is um, you're capturing an amazing event that happened, an amazing feat of just sort of stubborn, um, I don't know if the word is discipline or just like preparation or 
Um, you can see that in the white knuckles video as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. so many moving pieces to it. And we just didn't want people to think there was any way we had done it in pieces. This was an actual thing that happened in one moment. And it's the closest thing to being a fly on the wall is just a locked off camera in on one side. So that's kind of been the thing is like, people won't believe it's real. And of course, as the videos have gotten more and more complicated, it's even more important to prove somehow that these are real, that it's not CG, it's not hidden cuts or smoke and mirrors. It's just four guys working really, really kind of absurdly hard at something with no other goal than just to present it to you. How many takes did you do on the Here We Go Again? Um, on that one, I believe we did 17 complete run-throughs on the day. Um, so you are sort of rehearsing it as you were shooting in a way as well? Or, well, or? we had spent about 10 days choreographing and rehearsing it, and then we set aside one day to shoot it. Um, but it wasn't, in, it wasn't completely consistent and rehearsed at that point. I mean, it was pretty good, but uh, there was only really, there were only really two run-throughs that were perfect, or I shouldn't say they were perfect, two run-throughs that were not complete failures. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, one of the things with OK Go videos is we want them to be on the edge of what's possible. So there's no point where they're really repeatable every single time. You know, you're lucky if you get one or two good ones. So that's how it was that day. Well, then on White Knuckles, which I was really impressed by, which, you know... The dog one. Yeah the, yeah, the dogs and moving all the dogs around. That's my favorite one, the dog one. How did you even begin to develop that concept and make it look so precise and what the end result is? Well, that concept... And again, this comes from sort of Okigo's philosophy in general about these things, and, and mine as well, frankly, which is... Um, you know, an idea is a dime a dozen. Every single person in this town and every other town across the globe has an idea for something. Um, and the quality of that idea is much less important than the execution of it, because almost any idea will work if you execute it well. Um, and so in our case, what we came up with as a follow-up to the treadmills was less important than how we executed that idea. So we decided if we're going to have to put blood, sweat, and tears into sort of immaculate execution, then we might as well do something we really want to do. Let's stop thinking about, because we started out by talking sort of what would people want to see? What do people expect to see? What would blow people's minds? What would make people drop everything they're doing and forward it to all their friends? And then we said, what if we back up and just think, what do we want to do? Um, what's going to be fun for us? Because it's going to take a huge amount of time and effort and blood, sweat, and tears. Let's just do what we want and then do it really well. And um, I wanted to play with dogs so because I love dogs. Uh, and my brother, in fact, all the guys in the band love dogs. So we were just like, if we could do anything we want, ad nauseum to the like 11th power, what would it be? Well, play with dogs. So that's where it started. Um, and then, yeah, we spent a lot of time with dogs. Um, and another sort of important part of that project was to have dogs doing what dogs want to do versus training them or using dogs that have like really specific tricks that don't seem dog-like. For instance, there were some dogs that could like stand on their back legs and turn in a circle or like wear a tutu and um, balance a ball on their nose and stuff like that. And it's, that's kind of amazing in its own way, but it also just didn't feel like dogs. Like we're doing this because we love dogs so much. Let's have dogs running and jumping and climbing in and out of the things they want to climb in and out of. 
Um, you know, if dogs like to be in chairs, we'll let those dogs be in chairs. If dogs like to watch a tennis ball off camera with cheese all over it, moving right to left, that's what those dogs will do. So the, the development of that one very much came from like, it sounds silly, but collaborating with the dogs. Like, what does this dog like to do? What does he do well? Um, and now let's see what, you know, we can consistently get this dog to do and then find a way to make it interesting to watch at the same time. So the dogs were very much choreographic partners in that one. Was it a challenge at all getting the dogs to do what you want, even though you were embracing what they would naturally do? Right. Just getting them to be in sync with all of the pieces that would come together in this one shot. Very difficult. Because, I mean, dogs like to do what they like to do, but they like to do it pretty much like all the time or when they feel like it. And the, the you know, because so there would be some dogs who were like so eager to do their trick that they were just um, like in the background barking about, had to be held back by like four people because they were just so ready to get on their fucking table. Am I allowed to say fucking? Oh yeah. Sorry, okay. Uh, they were just so excited to get on their table. And then there were other dogs that were just like, yeah, yeah, I like to jump over a bar, but not right now. I'll do it when I want to. You know, so you had the kind of... So that must be frustrating <clears throat> when you're all the way through the shot and then a dog right. just doesn't want to... A dog's like, no, 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 I've done that enough <laughs> now. You know, or they get distracted by another dog. I mean, all these dogs knew each other by the end and were quite um, good at sort of focusing on their task, but dogs are dogs. You know, one of the days, my brother's dog, who makes a cameo in the film, um, her name is Bunny, and she's the little brown dog that um, sits with the... A uh, little black and white dog looking side to side at one point. Anyway, she, and she also rides around on the white chairs. She got into like a swamp the night before. She got out of the yard. Uh, we were all, we were shooting this in Oregon. So we were staying in these houses and she got out of the yard, ran around and got into literally a, a swamp. She smelled like marsh ass, um, really bad. And they gave her like four baths and like panic because she was so bad. She couldn't even be in a room with other people. And the smell of her was so exciting to the other dogs that it became very distracting. Like nobody could do their jobs. None of the dogs could work that day because they were all so focused on the way Bunny was smelling. So things like that happen. You know, dogs just get distracted by dog things. Uh, but 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 they were all pretty great. I mean, you know, that one was the hardest one um, probably. I mean, that one was probably the most takes because you'd have a deal killer right in the middle. You know, a dog just doesn't go where they're supposed to go or trips over something, or doesn't want to get off camera when they're supposed yeah. to get off camera. Because, you know, we had handlers calling them to come off when they're done with what they do, and sometimes dogs are just like, I'm not done yet, and they'll just stand there <laughs> right in the middle, you know? Um, now, for the waitlist music video, what yeah. are some of the challenges in that? Because there you have a whole new set of variables that... Yeah, the waitlist... The, so we shot this video for a song called Upside Down and Inside Out. We shot it in a uh, plane that flies maneuvers, parabolic maneuvers that sort of simulate weightlessness for small bits of time, about 24 seconds to 27 seconds. Uh, Did you have a full crew? Well, or? we couldn't have a full crew because of the size um, and also, uh, mo yeah, mostly the size of the plane that we were in. Um, we had a we had a DP, we had an AD, um, we had a sound man, uh, and but the problem is, you know, this plane it takes ten people to fly this plane, and. Um, 10 people to fly a plane. So it's like engineers, because they're constantly making calculations. I mean, you're basically, you're not in free fall. The plane's not in free fall because planes aren't designed to, to, to fall from the sky. So you're actually in a plane that's accelerating toward the ground in order to 
keep up with the speed that a body would be falling, if that makes sense. Yeah. So they're constantly making calculations based on the wind and the shear and the speed and the altitude and the engines and the side, you know, the wind from the front, the back, the side. I mean, it's, it's an incredible, complicated thing. Um, so the amount of people that are involved just to fly the plane takes up a lot of the space in the plane. And then we had a crane, um, because you know, we needed to, what, the way we ended up shooting this as a singular piece is we would get our 22 to 27 seconds of weightlessness. And then we would freeze. Everyone on camera would freeze while the plane climbs back up to altitude, which takes about four to five and a half minutes to go up again and over. So in those four and a half, five minutes, everybody has to be perfectly still. So the only way to kind of uh, make sure there was no human error involved in the camera staying perfectly still. Have it on a crane, and you know it does one, actually two camera moves, and to keep that perfectly consistent, we we needed a crane. Technocrane takes up a huge amount of space, so we had a crane operator up there, um, and that pretty much was it. There was no more space. Finding your your voice as a filmmaker, it seems that through those OK Go music videos, there was really a distinct voice that you had. Was that a conscious thing for you, or did that sort of develop in your collaborations with OK Go? I think it definitely developed as a collaboration. I mean, we, uh, you know, we grew up together, like I said, and so we have a lot in common just in our personal histories, but also in our sort of aesthetic and what we like and don't like. And, you know, my brother and I have always shared music and shared our, you know, what films we're watching or what things we find interesting. Um, at the same time, I mean, so, so it's definitely a collaboration and I definitely, you know, wasn't, I wasn't planning to be a filmmaker before I started making OK Go videos. I was planning to just be a, a dancer or a choreographer, maybe do some writing. Um, so it, it definitely was me finding my voice to work with them and it was not, you know, me telling them what to do. It was a very collaborative exploration, all of us together. Um, at the same time, when I, you know, look at the videos they've done that I wasn't involved with, I think there is a slight difference. I mean, there's a big difference. Every single one of them is different, but just a, a slight difference in approach in general. I mean, I think I'm interested in slightly different things than they are. I'm really interested in um, stories and like humans and characters. I think Damien is much more sort of mathematical and um, He's got a much more strong visual sense than I do, frankly. Um, so I think that's part of why we work well together is because as much overlap as there is, there's also a lot of difference between what we find most fascinating and most compelling. Um, so, you know, it's been, a, it's been a really good way for me to stretch that side of me that, that is detail-oriented and very visual. Um, but also, like, I, I, I'm very much interested now in sort of taking it to the next level and looking at how that affects longer form pieces and stories and characters and um, the change in people over time rather than just the change in shapes and pictures over time, if that makes sense. When you transition from doing these music videos and these short pieces into feature films that are established franchises like Step Up or into Pitch Perfect 3, how do you take that own, your own personal voice and make it into something that's been established already? Well, I think for me, what's been really important about going into these big franchises and, and these big movies is 
remembering what makes the OK Go videos so infectious and so special to people is that there's a certain transparency to them and a certain human realness to them that is often missing from big, slick productions. And, you know, when you go to a movie theater and you're going to see a big, splashy film and, and you want to get your money's worth, you want it to be big, you want it to be fancy, you want the production value to be there. But at the same time, if there's not something that feels human behind it, if there's not some indication of kind of the process that either the characters or the filmmakers or, or both of them went through in order to tell this story or make this thing happen, then I think there's a hollowness that people sense even if they can't put their finger on it. So to me it was really important, like look, you're coming into these franchises, you know, a lot of the characters are established, a lot of the world has been established, the fans come with a certain expectation, it's really important to work with inside of all of that and, and you know, you, 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 that's, that's what you signed up for. At the same time, what you know you can do because you've done it and it's in your it's in your wheelhouse is to bring a certain amount of humanity to it and to sort of um yeah bring visual interest and bring choreography and bring sort of knowledge of shapes and spaces and all that stuff that I've spent time on but also just keep some bit of evidence that people made this not machines or corporations or uh you know, committees, but some kind of single human effort behind the whole yeah. thing. And that, so that that's it's not a product that it's a, it's an artistic piece. Yeah. That. And that someone tried, <laughs> you know, someone cared, um, rather than just like dollars and cents and pixels and box office returns. Like someone cared artistically, someone cared about this. And, um, if you can get just a little of that in these franchise movies, then I think you have succeeded. What was exciting to you about the concept for Pitch Perfect 3 when you originally learned about it? Well, I'm a big fan of Pitch Perfect movies. I've seen both of the other two in theaters when they came out and was excited by them because they did seem human. They did seem like, you know, big Hollywood movies that had a, had a big impact, but also had something sort of quirky and strange and offbeat about it. And I loved the humor. I loved the visual aesthetic of them. I really loved the actors and their performances. I went to a school that college that had a big acapella scene, so that rang very, very true to me. That the sort of absurd nature of all of that, but also kind of the lovable contagion of it. So uh, it just it those movies hit for me um, even long before I knew I would ever be involved behind the camera. And then um, when I knew that they were looking for a director for the third one, it just kind of seemed like one of those like you've got to go for this. It seemed like an uphill battle to get the job, but I but I wanted it so bad because it just seemed like I can do something with this. It's the the comedy is raunchy and offbeat. There's plenty of music and dancing, but there's also a story. It's about women. It's about friendship. Um, it just kind of yeah. seemed like a dream project. Well, it's always interesting to hear the process be behind the hiring of directors for these big studio right. franchise projects. So for you, what was sort of going into it, your pitch or sort of how you presented to the producers to sort of get you on board? That's a good question. It's, it's kind of a blur to me now. I mean, I think I, I was very, very excited about taking these girls, uh, the Bard and Bellas, out of college and into the real world. And that seemed like a chance to reinvent the movie a little bit, um, to get away from the familiar landscape 
of Barden University and collegiate acapella and go somewhere new with it. So I was really excited about that. So I leaned hard into, you know, expanding the universe of these girls, both metaphorically and, and literally go out and go into the world. Um, I really liked that we're going to learn some backstory about Fat Amy. She is one of my favorite characters in movie history. I think she's amazing. And, um, you know, you know, she's from Tasmania in, in, I think the first movie you find that out, but you know, you have no idea what she's doing. Her real name is Patricia, which makes no sense. Like, so it just seemed like a really fun opportunity to kind of do a little bit of, of a origin story for her. I love her and give her a, she has like an action sequence or storyline, which I thought was going to be really, really fun to shoot and really fun to develop and really fun to work with Rebel Wilson on. And so there was just a lot going on. So I, I pushed hard on the, um, you know, uh, yeah, the creating a world for the Bellas outside of Barden, which felt new and fresh, taking Fat Amy on a new adventure, which felt new and fresh, um, sending Becca, which is Anna Kendrick's character, um, on kind of, you know, throughout this franchise, Becca has been the, the character that is essentially the prism for people to, you know, this, this movie is especially resonant for young women and girls, and I think, you know, she plays this kind of girl that they can relate to, the the one sane sort of grounded person in this pantheon of, you know, eccentric, quirky, weirdo girls. And so I, I felt it was really important to pay very close attention to her story because that's really how, you know, Fat Amy's funny and amazing and wonky wacky. And, you know, there's all these other sort of eclectic people in the mix. She's kind of the grounded She's the grounded person, so we got to keep that true because I think that's one of the things people love about these movies is as weird as they are, there's something that feels very authentic about them. So, um, so I really embraced that, the dichotomy of that. You can be as weird as you want with some stuff and then really keep Becca's character feeling like something pretty honest. Um, so those are all things I kind of pitched and talked a lot about because that's what I was excited about. I think it helped for sure that I had a lot of um, not just song and dance and shooting song and dance experience, but experience prepping something this big. Um, because, you know, so much of what goes into a movie, you don't just show up, obviously, and like point your camera at something and start shooting a movie. There's so many moving parts in prepping this, picking the locations and rehearsing and figuring out how you're, what, you know, what order you're going to shoot things and why and how. And, you know, obviously lining up all of the, gears so that when it starts to roll that everything's you know moving in the right direction at the same time and and um there's a lot of moving parts in a big movie like this and i think having done these okay go videos even though they're much smaller scale they require so much attention to detail and so much calculations and intricate preparation that that made the producers feel confident like i could handle something this big and complicated um, Do you get time for rehearsals of the big yeah. musical numbers? Yeah, we, we, the, the entire cast shows up about six weeks before we start shooting. Um, and for six weeks, it's just full time. They call it boot camp. We built a dance studio at our production offices. We built a recording studio to pre-record all the music. Um, so there's singing rehearsals, there's dancing rehearsals, there's acting. We do acting rehearsals, scene rehearsals too. Um, so yeah, it's are a pretty intense... Are you planning intense... out the shots during that time as well? We are planning out the shots. We storyboarded a lot of it. A lot of it we just shot with our phones, the DP, Matt Clark and I, um, just to sort of figure out what, what lenses we wanted and what angles we wanted. And um, yeah, there was a lot of preparation, a lot of preparation. 
It was interesting what you said before about everybody has ideas, but in order to, but the execution of them is really what kind of sets things apart. For you, what do you think is the key to executing an idea, knowing or knowing that an idea is executable? That's a really good question. Um, I think the key, there's a bunch of keys, right? And it always depends what situation you're in, what the key is. But I think one of the keys for me has been to keep multiple pot to, well, I should say it this way, to know when it's time to edit yourself or make a decision and when it's not time. And what I mean by that is, you know, it feels really good to be decisive. And I think decisiveness is a really good quality, especially in a director, you're making a million decisions, you know, every day, but you gotta know when it's time to sort of say that one, not that one, or this way, not that way. And when it's time to say, you know what? I'm gonna keep both possibilities alive a little longer to make sure we're picking the best one in this situation. And it's not a good feeling uh, to have because it feels much better to have a plan. Um, and it's also not a good feeling for producers to see you have because they want you to, they want to know you have a plan as well. But it seems to me the longer you can keep everyone at bay while you make your decision, and of course it comes to the point where you have to make a decision. If you don't make it quickly enough, now you're losing time that you needed to enact that decision. So knowing when that moment is, because a lot of times receiving feedback from people, say we're making a song choice, you know, receiving everybody's ideas about which song we should use at a point in the movie. You know, sometimes when the, when the suggestions flood in, I will have a, a knee jerk reflexive answer. I want that song. That song would be perfect. This song would be great. And, and I'm, I'm tempted to like firing off an email and just have it be that way. And sometimes it's like, you know what? I want you to Trish, make a playlist. This is what I'll tell myself. Make a playlist of these songs, listen in the car, listen at nighttime, listen when you first wake up in the morning, listen when you're happy, listen when you're happy. Make sure you're really sure that's the song. I know you like that song, but why don't you make sure that's the right one? And you know, these people over here are suggesting this song that you actually don't love, but maybe that's the right song. Like, and taking a lot of people's opinions and sort of letting them percolate longer than feels comfortable. Because I was surprised how many times my knee jerk response wasn't necessarily the right one. Sometimes it is. And your instincts are really important. Sometimes you just have to listen to that like gut voice. But a lot of times, um, learning to put that sort of committee, uh, input to use for you because people hate hearing like, oh, a movie's made by a committee, oh, decisions made by a committee. And it's true when, when all it is is a watered down version of your vision, that's terrible. But when you're able to sort of suspend your judgment until you've gotten a lot of information and then still make a clear decision after all of that, I think you often make better or more interesting choices than the ones you just make off the top of your head. And to me, that's what a lot of the process is and a lot of, um, you know, making an idea work is not always taking the easy route and not always knowing the answer right away, but really, really like, you know, in this age of like fake news, for example, you get, you, you see a headline and maybe it's from the other side of politics and you hate it, or maybe it's from your side of politics and you love it, and it feels really good to hate or love something just off the bat. What's harder to do is like 
dig down and make sure you understand everything about that headline, whether it's right or wrong, what the nuances are. And I feel like, you know, we're very good at making snap judgments. Um, and like I said, that's important, but I really, I'm trying to train myself more to just like, without getting overwhelmed, without getting sort of decision fatigue, get all the facts and explore all the possibilities before you commit to one. Um, and that's, I think, how good ideas come to be executed well. Thanks for listening to the Road to Cinema podcast. We'll see you next time.